I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. An anxious America, riven by protest and pandemic, braces for new shockwaves from both, from a tenth night of demonstrations and all they may bring, and from a fresh indicator of economic pain. Another 1.9 million people filed new claims for unemployment benefits, bringing the total number of laid-off Americans during the 11-week pandemic to 42 million. Caleb Silver joins us from Investopedia. How can it be that people are now returning to work and still getting laid off? Well, we're in this cross current in the U.S. economy right now where some businesses that tried to hold on couldn't hold on and are now letting go of employees and they don't see demand coming from consumers or other businesses for their wares. So they're having to trim costs. You see that. But you also see hiring in some sectors, typically uh, the restaurant sector, some of the leisure and hospitality sectors, even the retail sector with some of the big box retailers, because they need staff to to stack up merchandise. Those are mostly low paying, if not minimum wage jobs. So you see hiring there, but mostly the trend is this continuing claims for unemployment across the country. So where does that leave the economic picture that's about to come into sharper relief with Friday's unemployment report. Well, we are likely to see 19% or 20% unemployment in the U.S. economy. That's the most since the Great Depression. And it's going to be that way for a while because companies are not going to be ready to hire back in mass until they see robust demand. Robust demand means consumers need to be out there spending on discretionary items. They need to be traveling more. They need to be eating out more. And businesses need to start stepping up their capital X expenditures. That's not happening yet because the future is still uncertain. People are worried about a resurgence in the virus, but they're also worried about this low slong grind to economic recovery that could take months, if not years. How are businesses then to navigate in that climate? Obviously, they want to reopen. They want to rehire their workers, but it seems as if many are still hedging their bets. Right. CFOs and company executives that have been surveyed say their priorities are not hiring in 2020 or even 2021. They have to restore their balance sheets, which got destroyed in the last several months when we were all shut in and nobody was spending any money. So hiring back workforce is not the priority. Their priority is getting the balance sheet straight uh, and then being able to make investments in the business because they know demand will come back and they want to be ready for it. But that doesn't mean labor's first. It's easy to, to fire millions and millions of people. It's hard to hire them back on a dime because you just don't have the demand. Can we say things have hit bottom and are recovering or is is that premature? I think things have hit bottom in terms of the amount of jobless claims that we see. We saw that this week, 1.9 million down from 2.1 last week. It's been a slow downtrend, but continuing claims seem to rise. But we are seeing pickup in manufacturing, industrial production, and even in discretionary spending, little pickups here and there that could get bigger if the recovery picks up and we don't have a resurgence of the virus. But it's a very complicated time. There's a lot of protests in the streets. Businesses are closing because of that. Uh, Businesses are not ready to start spending again like they used to and Consumers are holding their wallets pretty close until they have a clearer picture of the economy. So it's a matter of pace, how quickly things are actually going to pick up around the country. Right. And some things are going to pick up a lot faster than others. We're already seeing a little pickup in the travel industry. It's going to take a long time for that to get back to 100%. It could take more than a year for that to happen. But you are seeing pickup in the retail space. You are seeing pickup in the services sector. Those are some of the bigger employers across the country, and you're seeing it in manufacturing. That's not going to translate all the way down to the broader economy and to broad-based hiring quite yet. It's going to take months, if not years, until we're back at a low unemployment rate. We're going to be up here for a while. Caleb Silver at Investopedia. Harvard Law School has decided to hold all of its fall classes online due to coronavirus, making it the first top law school in the country to confirm it will not be returning to campus next semester. Emma Zariello of Vermont is a second-year law student at Harvard. You okay with this? It's interesting because law school 
is an environment that is so regimented and so structured. So it's kind of a whirlwind to rethink the practice and rethink what's happened with recruiting and with jobs, um, given that it's usually so set in stone. So I think it's just going to look different when we do eventually go back, but I think that'll happen. What do you make of the decision by Harvard Law to keep you all learning remotely? I think I respect the decision given public health concerns. That said, I would like to see more concessions or more acknowledgement of the difficulties that continued online education will pose for a lot of students. And I think that's what's really been the struggle. I don't necessarily think that keeping people online is a bad decision. But I think if you don't put in structural support in tandem, um, that's where the difficulties arise. What do you mean? What are you looking for from the school? Uh, I think it would be really beneficial to kind of receive an itemized list of where our student fees are going and why we would still need to pay those student fees given that we're not going to be using facilities in the same capacity. I don't know if I've made up my mind on the extent to which tuition should be decreased, but it certainly seems that so many students attend law school and take out exorbitant amounts of loans to pay for law school because of the experience of being on campus and interacting with faculty and building a network with other peers and providing direct service to clients through student organizations. And if those things aren't a part of the Harvard experience anymore because of circumstances beyond Harvard's control, this is a time when the endowment really should kick in, I think, and allow students to still engage in the academic coursework with acknowledgement that things are drastically different. And when many of us decided to take out exorbitant student loans to attend law school, we had in mind services and, you know, a system and an environment that is just no longer practicable. Gonna say law school is is not an inexpensive proposition. Have you heard anything from the school that they may be leaning towards some of the change you're talking about? They released a list of frequently asked questions yesterday when they announced that we would be remote learning and stated that tuition would not be decreased. They did, however, freeze tuition, so there will be no increase in tuition that usually accompanies different academic years. But they have stated that tuition will not be reduced. They have not stated whether or not student fees will be adjusted, but I know a number of student organizations, particularly those that focus on lower income students or underrepresented minorities, are putting together petitions to ask the administration to consider lowering fees and tuition given the huge barriers this poses to those communities um, that are underrepresented at Harvard in general, but also disproportionately affected not only by coronavirus, but by an online learning environment. Emma Zariello, future lawyer, if you couldn't tell. Good luck with the semester. There are sharp spikes in coronavirus cases in several states, including Arizona, Utah, and North Carolina, where hospitalizations have hit a record high. North Carolina Health Secretary Dr. Mandy Cohen is with us. Some of this is undoubtedly increased testing, but it can't be all. That's right. So North Carolina has been aggressive from the beginning in that we actually never saw a first wave or a first spike here we, were, we worked hard to uh, slow the spread of the virus right from the beginning, right in March. Um, and so we've actually done a really good job of keeping that virus level low, um, but it also means the only place we have to go is up. Um, now, we are in a much better position than we were back in March to be able to respond. I think, as everyone knows, back in March, we didn't have the protective equipment we need. We certainly didn't have the testing capacity uh, in place, and we hadn't gone through the exercise of 
of working through all of the surge capacity we would need in our hospital systems and having the ventilators we need, et cetera. So we're certainly in a much better place than we are, but what we are seeing in the last number of weeks as we have started to ease restrictions here in North Carolina um, is that we are seeing both more new day-over-day new cases and more hospitalizations. Is there any one thing that, that may be causing the spike? Is there you know, one event or one gathering, or is it just the reopenings overall bringing more people out? Yeah, we are able to look at our data across our state. Um, we, we provide county and zip code level data. We have lots of maps. You should go see our, our, our dashboard. We really want folks to follow along with us. And what you will see on that is there isn't any one particular hotspot. I think all of our urban areas in, in North Carolina are seeing increases, but we are also seeing that in a number of our rural areas as well, because some of our rural areas have some high high uh, risk activities like some of our meat processing plants. And there are some, some places that we are, are seeing uh, viral spread uh, because of not following the, the guidance uh, from the governor and from the state. And so I think it's all of these things together. Um, and so we, we have actually taken more cautious steps forward in our easing of restrictions because we saw these cases going up and because we saw the hospitalizations start to go up. Um, so we, we had hoped to even open further, um, but we took a more modest step forward um, when we did our latest round of, of easing of restrictions. And we want to see how our numbers fare and our trends uh, look over the next couple of weeks to know what our next steps will be. Dr. Mandy Cohen is the health secretary for the state of North Carolina. Our thanks to you. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to Amy Robach. Thank you, Aaron. Joining me now is ABC News Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, we're awaiting some possible increase in cases due to all of these protests we're seeing out there on the streets. We already know that at least three Oklahoma State football players have tested positive after attending a protest. Uh, The scientific community is trying to figure out um, why some people are getting sicker than others. And so you have new data about a possible genetic link. Yeah, we don't talk a lot about genes and COVID yet because, again, we're in the infancy of this pandemic and this virus. This data is not yet published. It's not yet peer-reviewed, but comes out of Europe all about genes. So here's what we know so far, some mini-med school. First of all, a gene is a sequence of DNA or RNA that literally codes for a protein. So it's almost like a recipe. They, this study in Europe found two areas of human DNA. These are blood samples done on patients who are severely ill with COVID that they found were linked to a higher risk of developing COVID-19. They also were the first study to find a strong statistical link between patients who were critically ill and these genes. So again, we're in the infancy of it. It definitely needs more research, but really interesting. Yeah. So do they know anything more about these two areas specifically? And what are the theories at this point? A lot of theories. One of them we've already spoken about here on the show, Amy. One of them has to do with your blood type and risk of COVID-19. So what one of the theories is that these genes may leave some people more vulnerable to becoming severely ill and therefore dying. They found in terms of blood type that people with type A blood, this echoed the Chinese data that came out early on seemed to be at higher risk. The risk was 50 percent higher yeah, in those with type A blood of having severe disease. So this is people who needed oxygen or ventilatory support. And again, a theory is that the blood type genes are actually located very close to the immune system response Mm. genes 
on this strand of DNA and RNA. So really, really interesting. Yeah, that is fascinating. Obviously, it's a huge area of research. So what is still left to be determined. A lot, I'm assuming. A lot, <laughs> definitely. First of all, this is not ready for prime time yet, so people shouldn't rush out and get their blood checked. We don't yet know why blood type may be associated with COVID-19. We don't know if a DNA test could actually help to identify people who are already infected with COVID-19 who may then require or need a different treatment algorithm. We don't know if these genes could then be a target for drug development. That is always the, the exciting potential. And we don't really know if it's possible that you could have a COVID-19 gene or genes yet. So a really interesting uh, area of research, and there is definitely a lot to learn. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Jen. Well, a second straight night of mostly peaceful protests and relative calm in New York City. Here to talk about how New York City is handling all the public outrage over George Floyd's death is Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. Thank you so much for joining us. And we should point out, you spent 22 years on the New York City Police Force. You were one of the co-founders of 100 Blacks in Law Enforcement. That's an organization that works to improve the relationship between police and the African-American community. What has your reaction been to what you're seeing here in New York, around the country, around the world? Uh, Police uh, reform and um, the safety of the public is really my life's work. You know, I was arrested as a child, beat bad by police and asked to come into the police department by activists that were fighting against police abuse. And I spent my life inside the agency of doing that. I used to protest during the day on stop and frisk and then change into my uniform at night and protect protesters. I know what it feels like to have someone spit in your face or have someone chase you um, out of sight when you are protesting. And my number one concern is that these young people have a righteous pursuit for justice in our police agencies, but we also have a fundamental, fundamental obligation to make sure our city is safe. Last night, we had a police officer that was stabbed in the neck. We don't know if that was a terrorist threat. We don't know if that was part of the group that's attached to the violent arm of what has happened across our country. And we must be vigilant of making sure we can protest, but we can't do it with violence. Yeah, as borough president, how are you dealing with all of that? It's, 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 a, it's a challenge. challenge. And when you look at coming over coronavirus. Uh, I've been here in my office. I set up uh, my home here for the last uh, 50 plus days so I could respond on the ground. I, I'm, I'm thinking about the days of 9-11 and we didn't know what was the next day was going to bring. And I feel the same way now. And my goal is to be on the ground to talk to the organizers. I've been communicating with many of the organizers here to tell them how to identify those who are here to burn down the city. There's a difference between the peaceful protests that you're seeing sweeping the nation and those who are trying to embed themselves in the peaceful protests. They're not looking for police reform. They're looking to destroy our cities. And I'm talking to the organizers to share with them how to identify those people, how to get them out of your movement so that you don't cause um, real damage to those innocent protesters who are looking for reform. Yeah, that distinction, obviously, so important. And speaking of police reform, you've said training is key when it comes to police de-escalating a situation, but that training has not yet evolved. What do you want to see change? First of all, this is a, an opportunity. Um, out of pain comes purpose. And we this is a purposeful moment where we should look at how we treat police. Uh, I say all the time that 
uh, every if because you're in a profession does not mean you should do every job in that profession. You know, there's a reason we have emergency room doctors and we have surgeons. Police is the only occupation where we don't look at the characteristics of the person who's responding to a particular job. As a platoon commander, the person I wanted with me when I had to kick in the door to go after someone with a gun is not the same person that I would want when you need to sit down and speak on a hostage negotiation team. And we don't treat police that way. We need to, number one, identify those officers who have the characteristics to be on the front line of these very tense encounters. And then we need to train officers on how to de-escalate each other. We're trained how to de-escalate a person who's in a high-stressful situation, but we need to now identify how do we de-escalate each other. And what happened in uh, Minnesota is very important. For the first time, you're seeing prosecutors say to law enforcement officers, you are your brother's keeper. If you stand back and watch someone committing a crime, you are held accountable at the same time. And that's a very important message that we have not seen in the past. Yeah, I want to talk about accountability. Do officers need to be held to a higher standard than they are right now? Without a doubt. Think about this for a moment. Uh, The law enforcement community, as a police officer, I had two rights that even the president of the United States, uh, thank God with this one, but the president of the United States did not have. You have the right to take away liberty and the right to take a life. That is so dear and precious to America. And if you give that right to someone, you must be held to a high standard and high oversight. And we're not doing that well here in our country. Far too long, we have become a safe haven for those who want to use that power in an abusive way and not in a corrective way. And this is not to broad brush and demonize every person who adorns a uniform or puts on a badge because there's an admirable, uh, a, a large number of people who we should admire for what, I, what they do, as I was saying. But we need to hold people accountable in a very real way. You can't be a police officer and put up a white power symbol, as we saw a New York City police officer do the other day, or drive over a crowd or pull down the face mask of a young man and mace him in his face. That can't happen. Well, we certainly appreciate your very powerful and important words. Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Take care. You too. And there is much more ahead here on what you need to know. The shaky ground between the pandemic and the protests for national nonprofits like Dress for Success, struck by vandalism. The CEO is here on how they are moving forward and how you can help. Plus, finding peace and pleasure in your own backyard. New ways to expand summer fun at home when we come back. There's not a person in America who hasn't been impacted in some way by the coronavirus pandemic. But in every community, there are pockets of people who are suiting up every day. This is my Monday. The last day of a seven-day stretch. These are America's essential workers, the people who are keeping our world moving. I'm on my way to drop off a bag of produce for one of our tenants. And now, in a new podcast from ABC News, you're going to hear from them in their own words. But there's always a risk that I could bring this home to my kids or my husband or my parents. This is The Essentials Inside the Curve. Listen on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.
As concerns of the pandemic give way to the cries of protest, some businesses are finding themselves caught in the crosshairs. Just this past weekend, a Dress for Success store in Oklahoma City was destroyed by arson. Joining us now is the CEO of Dress for Success, Joy Gordon. And Joy, thank you so much for joining us. And so sorry to hear about what happened. Can you tell us about the fire? Sure. It appears that Saturday night there was a peaceful protest in Oklahoma City. Um, And around 2.30 in the morning, what was peaceful ended up being someone, I'm assuming not someone who cared anything about George Floyd or his memory or his legacy, but someone threw a Molotov cocktail at our building and burnt it to the ground. Um, And it was shocking to all of us to wake up on Sunday morning um, and to realize that a, a place of hope, a home for women in the community was no longer there. Yeah, that's so desperately needed in these times more than ever before. So what is your plan to move forward despite this? Thanks for asking. We have immediately reached out to the community. And what I know about Oklahoma, and I know this because I was raised there. I went to college at the University of Oklahoma, and Oklahoma is my second home. And so what I know about Oklahomans is that they're strong and they're resilient. And immediately they locked arms around Dress for Success. People who've come through our doors because they needed clothing. But more importantly, the community heard the mayor put a call to action to support our organization. So we have had a record number of people join us from a $5 increment to a $2,500 increment on a GoFundMe page. And so that will help us rebuild Dress for Success Oklahoma City. We also have um, a number of businesses, clothing companies like Talbot's, And just this morning, a gentleman called me from Oklahoma City, a guy by the name of Mark Beffert, and he wants to make sure he's a real estate owner and manager of properties in the Oklahoma City area. And he said not only will he ensure that we come back, but he is he is going to find us a new home and dress for success in Oklahoma City. Oh, that just gave me chills. There is more good in the world. We all need to remember that. And I know that we are still dealing with this pandemic, which has left over 40 million people unemployed, 55 percent of whom are women. So talk about how Dress for Success has adjusted to these new circumstances. Yeah, no, we not only adjusted here in America, but our pivot was global. So Dress for Success has 155 offices in 25 countries around the world. And in a matter of 20 days, we went from 5% um, running virtual programs to 90% of our operation started to run their programs virtually. And so on any given day, anywhere around the world, we're running programs for women to make sure they have the skills they need to reenter the job market. Disproportionately, this is affecting brown and black communities, and that's a large majority of the women we serve here in America. And so the types of jobs that will be slow to come back, hospitality, restaurants, retail, those are the jobs that our women hold. So while they are at home and unemployed, we want to make sure that companies like General Assembly and ADECO and and LHH and companies that are focused on um, giving people the tools they need to succeed in the workplace are working with Dress for Success and providing trainings for us at no cost to our clients so that they're ready for the new job market when it opens up again for them. You mentioned those generous donations. I'm sure people who are listening right now want to help. So how can they do that? Well, we would welcome anyone to go to our website, which is dressforsuccess.org, and find a local Dress for Success near you and figure out a way to not only maybe make a financial commitment to our organization, because all nonprofits, all of us, 
are suffering right now. We're small businesses and like any small business, our income is really being depleted at this time. So we need funding, but we need volunteers. And of course, Amy, you've done this for years. We need donations of clothes at some point in the near future. So we appreciate the donations and we appreciate the support. And let's start with rebuilding Dress for Success Oklahoma City. And let's be Oklahoma strong right now. I love that you are literally the face of resilience right now and inspiration. Joy Gordon, thank you so much for your time today. We're wishing you the very best. Thanks, Amy. With the first day of summer just weeks away, families have had to adjust their warm weather activities due to the pandemic. And now some families are bringing the fun right to their own backyard. Step 2 Discovery LLC sells playhouses, wagons, and other outdoor sets to help turn any lawn into your own personal playground. And here to discuss how his business has changed during the pandemic is Step 2 Discovery CEO, Tony CPL. So, Tony, thanks for being with us. And talk first about how your company has been impacted by these times. Amy, thank you, first of all, for having me. Well, over the last few months, we have certainly been impacted by the effects of the pandemic in many ways. We've been uh, adjusting our product sales mix, adjusting the way we uh, manufacture and slowing down our processes and uh, responding to actually what has been tremendous increase in demand for our products. Right. We've also seen in the pandemic uh, a lasting change for consumers that we believe to be good for them and good for us. And that is they're spending more time at home enjoying their family and their friends. That's right. So we're all in our backyards. And so tell us what parents are looking for with your products, what kids are looking for right now. So parents are looking for two things. One, they want to first create an oasis for themselves to relax and enjoy their family and friends, to entertain. Second, they are looking for a way to occupy their children with safe toys that get them off the couch, out of the house, active, in a safe, fun play. And so they're kind of creating the best of both worlds in their backyard, a haven for them and a safe place to play for their children. Yeah, that definitely sounds like a win-win to me. And you have a product called Kid Alert that has been especially important during this pandemic. Can you tell us why? Sure, yeah, we've been uh, the leader in the creating of child alerts Uh, for over 15 years. And as many people are having more children staying at home, they're interested in in keeping them safe. And so we've seen a dramatic increase in the sale of our child alerts for home. But what's really been interesting is the pivot that we've seen in the use of our child alerts in hospitals, manufacturing facilities, garden centers, nursing homes, etc., all alerting people to the need for social distancing. And so we're actually creating new products that build off of this child alert around social distancing. Wow, that makes so much sense. Thank you so much, Tony CPL, for being with us today. We appreciate it. Last week, a small group of volunteers decided to chip in and help by providing medical aid at the ongoing protests in their hometown of Austin, Texas. So here to tell us how the group came together and what they've been experiencing is firefighter and co-founder of Street Medics Austin, Toby Heidel. Thank you so much for being with us, Toby. And I know you co-founded Street Medics Austin just last week. So tell me how the group came together in the first place. 
Sure. Uh, Street Medics Austin, uh, we provide uh, nonpartisan first aid and support services for peaceful protesters, bystanders, and uh, other people when emergency, uh, traditional emergency services can't. Um, we just sort of uh, identified a need um, last week. Um, uh, we saw some of the stuff that was going on around the country, and uh, there were some protests uh, planned in Austin. And we thought we'd uh, go down and, and, and try to help out. Um, and, and to be clear, we're not a, an, a, an activist organization or a protest organization. It's just with my experience in uh, emergency services, I realized that there are some scenes that uh, aren't safe enough uh, for a, a variety of reasons, whether it be the, the crowd size or, um, or other reasons that uh, traditional services can't get in and provide uh, care on the ground. So we thought we'd sort of uh, step in and, uh, and uh, be a resource to, to do some some uh, on-the-ground work there when uh, uh, traditional services uh, can't necessarily get in uh, to help. Yeah, and I'm curious, Toby, when you first attended the protests, how did you expect to help, and then what kind of aid did you end up providing? Sure. Well, it's uh, it's really hot and, and humid in Texas generally during the summer. And so uh, initially we thought that uh, when we went down there, we'd set up a little aid station and maybe uh, give out some water, uh, maybe, uh, you know, bandage up uh, uh, a cut finger or two. Um, but uh, as the day went on, uh, the protest uh, got a little uh, unruly, and um, we ended up providing uh, a significantly higher uh, level of care down there. Um, we, uh, we ended up, uh, there, were, there, were, uh, there was tear gas and um, uh, pepper spray that was deployed, and so we uh, had a lot of uh, mucous membrane irritant uh, injuries, and then also some uh, less lethal munitions were deployed. And so we had a lot of um, uh, trauma as well that we ended up uh, treating throughout the weekend. And you're in the middle of all of this. So you and your group are putting yourselves at risk as well, given those circumstances and those conditions. And I understand some members of your of your team were injured while helping at the protests. Yeah, that's uh, an un- a few unfortunate incidents uh, occurred last weekend. Um, it's, uh, again, a, a large, uh, chaotic environment that uh, we're working in. And uh, unfortunately, while um, rendering uh, rendering aid, we did have a, a medic. Um, it was uh, late in the evening on Sunday after uh, our official operations had ceased. Some of the uh, the medics uh, stuck, around, st- uh, stuck around in an independent role. And one of our medics uh, that evening was unfortunately uh, shot with um, less lethal munitions. Um, she is recovering, but it, uh, it, we have some some um, procedures in place uh, with the city now to hopefully um, be able to identify us and, and ensure that uh, that they know that we're not necessarily part of the protest, that we're just down there to help. We're, we're only there to help people um, and, and provide uh, services and aid and, and takes, actually take some of that load off of city services. Yeah, well, we're glad she is on the mend right now. We certainly are happy to hear that. What's been the biggest surprise for you during this experience? You know, honestly, the biggest surprise has been the the outpouring of uh, interest and um, and donations and um, just uh, just the the goodwill that we've that we've uh, engendered with this thing. Uh, it's been amazing just uh, over the, the the course of the last week how it's grown from just a couple of us literally setting up a, a card table, um, and even just on Saturday and Sunday while we were down there and 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 through deployments uh, or during de- deployments throughout this week. Um, where medical supplies have shown up. We have uh, combat medics um, 
firefighters, uh, paramedics from, uh, from local agencies who are volunteering with us, ER nurses, uh, ER doctors. So our staff has, uh, and volunteers have, uh, have grown quickly and we're providing, um, a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of services down there. And that has just been amazing to see people, uh, come out of nowhere, um, and just come together to, uh, to just try to help people. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's all we're about. And it's so hopeful to see how many want to help. So what are your plans going forward for Street Medics Austin? Sure. Well, we do have a, a few planned deployments uh, this weekend. Um, there are a number of, uh, of actions that are uh, scheduled um, in Austin this weekend, and we, uh, we plan to be downtown for the majority of those. And honestly, going forward, our hope is <laughs> at some point to, to be able to do what we wanted to do in the first place, and that is just, uh, you know, set up a card table, give out some, some snacks and, and water, um, you know, at, at future events. We do live in the, uh, the capital of Texas, and so there are a whole lot of uh, peaceful protests and, uh, and marches and, and and those sorts of events that happen here. And if, uh, if uh, again, if we can go down in the, the middle of July and give out some, uh, some cold, uh, wet towels and, and some nice, uh, cold water and a, a few granola bars, that would be fantastic. Uh, that'd be a great weekend for me. Well, Toby, thank you so much for all that you're doing. We certainly appreciate you. Sure. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Derek Blasberg is the head of fashion and beauty for YouTube, a fashion journalist and, oh, a best-selling author as well. During the pandemic, Derek has been lending a helping hand by volunteering with City Meals on Wheels to deliver over 10,000 meals to the elderly here in New York City. And Derek is joining us now. And Derek, thank you for being with us. You know demand for food among the city seniors is unprecedented. City Meals added 3,000 recipients to its home-delivered meal program just since the start of this pandemic. Why is this organization important to you? On a personal level, uh, I started working with City Meals on Wheels after Hurricane Sandy in 2012. And it was, it was a great way to not only pitch in, but immediately see uh, the gratified faces of the, of the people that you're helping. Um, and so when the coronavirus crisis rolled around, um, it felt like the right thing to do again. Yeah, you're meeting the most basic need and people need it more than ever now. So tell us uh, what more had City Meals been able to accomplish during this COVID-19 crisis? What have you been able to do? Um, As part of its emergency response, City Meals has delivered nearly a half a million shelf-stable emergency meals to older New Yorkers in need across all five boroughs. Um, We partnered with Audi to deliver more than 10,000 meals to housebound New Yorkers. Typically, City Meals on Wheels has about an 18,000-person list of housebound New Yorkers. And obviously, during a crisis like this, when we're encouraging people to stay home to stay safe, and we're talking about the most vulnerable population in New York, those numbers have gone up. Yeah, no, I, I can't even imagine it. And I'm also curious how you are making sure these meals are being delivered safely and what the reception's like when you bring that much-needed food to these folks who are safely at home. Well, that's, that's something that I think uh, is important to clarify is that, um, of course, elderly New Yorkers are especially vulnerable to COVID-19. And so when I first delivered meals, um, you know, nearly 10 years ago, there was a much different protocol. Now what we do is we take sanitized bags with the meals already prepared. You put them on the doorknob. You ring the door. You then stand at least six feet away uh, to make sure that the meals are received. That's partly because we want to make sure the food gets to who it needs to get to, but also because for a lot of these people, um, this will be the single human-to-human interaction they'll have all day. Mm. So um, it's, it's to, to say that the faces are grateful is, is sort of an understatement. 
And of course, there are so many amazing organizations and opportunities here in New York and around the world. And at, especially at this moment in American history, there are so many important causes to support. But what's great about City Meals uh, is that it's not only an opportunity to donate, but a, a place to volunteer. And uh, it wouldn't be um, a plug without me mentioning the website, which is City Meals. That has all that kind of information yes. on it. Yes, all donations are very welcome, I know. Thank you for all that you're doing, Derek, and thank you so much for joining us. We certainly appreciate it, and you. Thank you, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Okay, so when the New York Times calls you one of the eight news podcasts worth listening to, well, you just say thank you. So go on, start smart with Start Here, the ABC News Daily Podcast. Take us with you. Listen to us now, free on Apple Podcasts. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.